Welcome to this Quantum Conversation. I'm Loren Gailey, and we are here to hear a remarkable story of a couple near-death experiences. And as we've heard, when someone has a near-death experience, they awaken or bring online psychic abilities. My guest today is here to share her story of that happening and how this assisted her in truly hearing the call of her higher self and made a complete life change. Dr. Lottie Valentine is here with us and we welcome you to the show. Thank you, Dr. Lottie. Thank you so much, Loren, for having me on the show today. It's, it's my pleasure. We love the stories of near-death experiences because for one thing, many of us already know, it is validation of our existence as beings. But this notion that psychic abilities actually increase after an NDE is something that you experienced yourself. Let's start with your story. You had two near-death experiences and this literally caused a complete life change. Oh, yes, it did. It caused a complete life change. So um, my story goes like this. So I had uh, two children and I was pregnant with my third and um, everything went well. I had two, nat you know, two natural births before. There were no complications. And so being the third baby, I had a contraction and we headed to the hospital right away. I said, well, the last baby came within two hours, so we better hurry up. So we took off for the hospital. And as I was lying on the table, um, contracting about three minutes apart, this is how this crazy story starts. We experienced a 7.4 earthquake. It was that the, the shaking of that hospital was unimaginable. The, the tools on the trays in the, in the room were levitating and they were just bouncing up and down. And this was a newer hospital. This was in California and it was built on rollers. So the whole hospital was swaying back and forth and the entire wall had those huge glass windows. The shaking was so bad that my husband and the nurses were just leaning over my table so that I wouldn't just literally levitate off the, the bed and onto the floor. And it was so bad. I, I literally thought I was going to die. And it, when the shaking finally stopped, my labor had also stopped. So this is kind of the beginning of this crazy story. What caused what in the end, we don't really know. Anyway, the labor started back up after half an hour. I gave birth and then we had another 7.2 earthquake. And then after that, things were calming down, a lot of aftershocks. They gave me the, finally gave me the baby to hold. And I just experienced this excruciating pain. And I'm literally, you know, screaming, leaning backwards. And I'm just shouting, take the baby, take the baby. And they took the baby and then they massaged out this huge mountain of blood clots, like the size of a soccer ball, this, just a huge mountain. And I was put on Pitocin IV to help contract the uterus and stop that bleeding. And we experienced so many aftershocks and we had lost the power in the hospital. We were running on generators at this point. And, you know, I'm just lucky to be you know, alive at this point. So after an extra day in the hospital, they said, oh, you know, the bleeding seems to have calmed down. So we're going to send you home. 
And then 10 days later, my friends were holding a baby shower for me in the park because I had a girl and I had two boys previously. So my children are now six, three and a half and a newborn. And, you know, you're all excited because you're going to get girly things. Now you finally have a girl. And I get to the park and I tell my friend, well, let me go use the restroom before, you know, everybody else arrives. So I take my children so that they can go to the bathroom too. And as I sit on the toilet, this huge blood clot comes out of me, the size of a baby's head. And it just drops into the toilet. And staring into the toilet is one of those moments in your life when you're nauseated because you're realizing it came out of you and, and what could possibly be wrong. So I went back and I told my friend what had happened. And I said, okay, we got to go. So we drove back home. My parents were visiting from Sweden, and which is a country in Europe where I was raised. And my husband came home and we went to the emergency room and we told them what had happened. And they said, well, you know, they did a manual examination. This is in 1992. And they said, well, you know, not much blood is coming out right now. It's just a trickle. And after two or three hours in the hospital, they said, well, you know, everything looks fine. So we're going to send you on your way. No ultrasound, no blood work, nothing. This was 1992. So I go back home. And then the next night, the next evening, I go to the bathroom at home. And the same thing happens. This huge blood clot comes out, drops into the toilet. And again, I'm staring at this thing and I'm calling my husband, calling my parents, you know, come quickly, like I'm bleeding again. And we called the hospital and said, what should we do? Should we just come back? Because nobody did anything yesterday. And, and we're young. We're, you know, I'm 34, my husband's 35. Um, and you know, we're just thinking, you know, they didn't do anything yesterday. So if we go back, what are they going to do? So as my husband is on the phone with the hospital, uh, it was decided I should just see the doctor in the morning because no more blood was coming out. It was just back to this normal little trickle that you typically have after giving birth. So the next morning we go to the doctor. We live in Huntington Beach at the time. I see the doctor. I tell him what has happened so far. He examines me and he says, well, there's just a trickle of blood coming out right now and sends me on my way. And then Friday evening, so this is Friday morning, Friday evening, same thing happens again. I go to the bathroom, another huge blood clot. So we said, well, this is the third time now, so we, we should go back. So we went back to the ER and thank God we did because I probably wouldn't be here today if we hadn't. We get back, same thing happens again. That they come in, they do a visual examination. They say, well, not much is coming out right now. It could have been, you know, a, a second lining that came out. It's like oh, after the birth, they keep me for observation. They close the door. I have no bell to ring, no way to contact anybody or call for a nurse. And as I'm lying there, I start bleeding again. So at this point, I'm just thinking, great, I'm finally bleeding again. Somebody is going to figure out something is wrong with me. So it was kind of, I was kind of happy about it. And I wasn't thinking about how much I was bleeding because I, I've been bleeding for days and nobody really seemed to care about it. So I didn't know how serious it was or how much blood I had really lost. So randomly, this nurse opens the door and 
you know, to check on me. And I'm literally lying in a pool of my own blood. Like the, all the, the paper is just completely bloody. And her jaw just drops. She opens the door and she's like, oh. And then I hear the stat call on the speakers. And it's like, stat, we need an OBGYN stat to the ER. And I'm lying there. And all I can think of is, oh my gosh, finally, they figured out something is wrong with me. You know, and then this elderly uh, doctor, because I was in my 30s, so he was probably in his 50s. And he comes running into the ER with a young doctor, probably a resident physician behind him. And I'm, my only thought is, oh my gosh, he's older. He's going to know what to do with me because he's been through a lot of things. And sure enough, he did. So this is a doctor that literally saved my life. So again, they examine me. So he's like, okay, lie down. We're going to see what's going on. So as they're examining me, you know, I, there is another large blood clot that comes out. And at that point, I had lost so much blood that there was barely anything left of me. And I try to sit up and tell him, and I'm like, I don't feel good. And right away, he knew what was going on. So he's just, you know, pushed me back onto the bed and the bed starts tipping backwards to get my head and my vital organs so that they, they can move the blood from my legs to the vital organs to try and keep me alive. And as the bed is tipping backwards, the whole room fills with, you know, emergency nurses and doctors. So the whole room is full of people. And as they're working on me, I have a nurse on my right that is quoting my blood pressure. And I have a, a nurse on my left that's trying to put an IV in. And she's having such a hard time. And I remember thinking, what's taking her so long? But now I know when you're going into shock and, and you've lost a lot of blood, it's really, really hard to access the, the veins. That's why now, nowadays, we place an IV right away. As soon as we think something like that could happen, we place an IV so we have access to the veins so we can inject medications and things. But this is 1992. So this, I guess, wasn't yet standardized. So she's trying really hard to get an IV in and the nurse on my right is quoting my blood pressure. And as the bed is being you know, tipped backwards and I'm like this on the bed, I, can, I feel like I'm falling. So it's like you're in an elevator that has lost the cables and it's just plunging to the bottom of a chute like you're in a skyscraper. So I just have this feeling of falling you know, at a rapid pace. And as I'm falling, I hear the nurse quoting my blood pressure. And when it gets really low, she, she yells out, 50 over 15, hurry, she yells. And that's too low a blood pressure to support a heartbeat. So, and it's at shortly after that point that I realize that I am dying. Now that is very different from the experience I had when I was giving birth. When I thought I was going to die in my labor stop, We've, mo most of us have had situations like that or been close to an accident and you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. And you think you're going to die. This was different. I knew that I was dying and it was very different uh, feeling and a very different experience. I was a complete atheist. I did not believe in anything. I did not believe in religion. I was, I was raised as a Lutheran. I was confirmed at age 14, but I did not believe a thing about religion. I did not believe there was a higher source, a God or anything. I thought you die, it's black, that's it, you're gone. So this is how I'm walking into my first near-death experience. So here I am on the table and I know 
I'm dying. What, so what do I do? I pray to God to save my life because there was nothing left. What else could I have done? So I pray to God to save my life. I say, please let me live. I have three children under the age of six. They need a mother. And it was shortly after that, that I was just, oh, so first I'm falling. And so then before I leave my body, let me tell you what happened. The thing that happened was like the hearing got supersonic. It was like, I could hear, but I wish I could hear like that today. It was like supersonic hearing. And it was so magnified. You could hear anything, but it was right after that moment that I was just sucked out of my body. But I was in my body. And then one second later, like in a split second, it goes so fast that I don't even know how to explain it because it's just faster than the speed of light, faster than the speed of sound. You are in your body one second and the next second you're not. It's just, you just pop out. It's like instantaneous. So I'm like a couple of feet above my body. It felt like, you know, an arm's length about outside my body. I never, I never see my body from above. Like a lot of people turn around and look down at their own body, but I was not like that. I was just kind of like straight up in my body, but I was aware of everything. And there was this, first of all, there was this knowledge that there is no time on the other side. So you have access to all the time, past, present, and future. It's just all exists simultaneously somehow on the other side. But then there is also this peace on the other side, this unconditional peace and love that you feel because you're outside your body. But I was also aware that I was attached to my body, that I belonged down there and that was my, my house. But being outside my own body, I mean, the first thing that went through my mind was, how can this be? How can I be outside my body and still be me? This is not supposed to happen. I was a complete atheist. I didn't believe in any of this. But now I'm outside my body and I'm looking down and I'm like, I belong down there. There is this string. I've heard people talk about the silver cord. I didn't see it. I just had the sensation of being somehow attached energetically to that body down there. And then all of a sudden, I get sucked back down into my body. And it's for anybody who has seen Tim Allen in the Santa Claus movie, the original, when he goes through the chimney and he just gets sucked down. It's kind of like that. It's like a giant vacuum hose that sort of just sucks you back in. So again, within a split second, I'm back in my body. It's that one second you're outside, the next second you're back in. And it's, it just happens so fast. So during this first near-death experience, I didn't go anywhere, but I just stayed in the ER. And as I came back into my body, you know, I was still coming, coming too. I can hear the whole team cheering and clapping. It's kind of like one of those shows on TV when they save the live and everybody's like, woo, you know, we, get, we saved her. So, and then I, you know, of course, stayed in the hospital. I had lost a lot of blood. And this was 1992. So what's the first thing I managed to tell the doctor? He says, I'm going to have to give you blood. And I say, wait, wait, do you have to give me blood? <laughs> because in 1992, we had no way of testing for AIDS. And it was a big problem back then with um, taking blood. And he said, the doctor said, 
I'll see what I can do. We will monitor you. Uh, you're young, you're otherwise healthy. Chances are you're going to make blood very quickly. And so they monitored me for two days and, oh, it was my body was cold. My hands and feet were ice cold. Couldn't put my head on a pillow. My head was just pounding. And um, they ended up not giving me blood because they said, I, you know, it's, I'm not going to feel too good for a month or two um, because they have, you know, have to build up the blood, but it was better than receiving blood. So, you know, taking that chance. So we went the route with, okay, we're going to support it. We're going to give you these iron supplements. We're going to do all this other stuff. And we're going to give you all this medication to stop the bleeding and heal whatever was wrong. And I pretty much slept. So this was July 12th. Um, I think my first memories are in August because they tell me all I did was sleep. And I know my parents changed their tickets back home to Sweden twice. And then my mother-in-law came to help us for another two or three weeks. It's just, you know, it's just a blur of how long everybody was there. But my daughter was born June 28th. And it wasn't until September that I was able to sit up and, you know, hold, sit on my own. Um, I still couldn't really do anything. It took me six months to um, just be able to go to the grocery store and get milk because it, everything took a really long time. And we thought it was just, oh, it's just, you know what's happening and I'm just building blood and then um, we all got sick we all got pneumonia and the flu and I kept getting sicker and sicker and we all went to like a walking clinic um, to get help right away and I was putting antibiotics they said oh you have this you know terrible ear infection and you know beginning pneumonia and everybody in the family got antibiotics and everybody got well except me I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And so after eight days on antibiotic, I go back to the walking clinic and they said, wow, like how, you're really sick. Like you're having a full blown pneumonia and uh, we're going to take your blood. So they pricked my finger and they went, or I can't even remember. I think they just pricked my finger, took some blood, went to look at it and they came back and they said, do you have AIDS or leukemia? And I said, well, I hope neither. And told them what had happened. And they said, well, you have no immune system. You basically have no white blood cells. And that's why you're so sick. So again, here we go. You know, I'm being held at the walk-in for two or three hours. They're injecting me with antibiotics and who knows what, because I didn't, I didn't know back then what, you know, you, they just didn't give you medication. And eventually I started healing. And then by March, um, I started to bruise and I would get I bumped into the baby's changing table and something that would give you a bruise about the size of a nickel gave me a bruise that spanned my entire hip area. So again, it was just, you know, it turned out that I ended up having what's called like uh, idiopathic aplastic anemia, where that's our best guess of what it was. And so that um, idiopathic thrombocytopenia, when you have a reduction of your platelets. So if you just hit your fingers, you know, very easily on the counter, for example, they would turn blue because you have no clotting ability. So I was sick with that for years. And I walked a fine line, uh, literally between life and death. Now that I'm a doctor, I understand how sick I was, but at the time I didn't. And it was kind of a blessing in disguise that I didn't understand how sick I was. And every time I went to the doctor, they were literally freaking out saying, oh my gosh, we have to do lab work right now. And oh my God, you know, because they could see what was wrong. If I would see a patient like that today, I would be go to the emergency room. But, you know, being young and, and innocent, 
I was like, well, I'm getting better. So I'm just going to keep going. And I walked, you know, this fine line for like six years, but especially the first three years. And I don't know if it was because I was so sick or a combination of being so sick and having had a near-death experience, but it was a constant struggle to hold my soul back inside my body. So if you imagine that you're laying a puzzle and you're at that last piece of the puzzle and you're trying to put it into the puzzle, but it sticks up a little bit. So you're kind of not smacking it a little bit to, to make it flat with all the other pieces. It was that kind of a feeling. It was as if my soul had emerged all the way back into my body. So it was this constant separation. And I would be tying the kids' shoes to go you know, outside. And I would just be like, not now, not now, stay inside, soul. And it was this constant struggle of, of keeping my soul inside me. And I was, you know, still really sick. I had no, I kept getting pneumonia, you know, every year I would be really sick. It was this constant cycle because my immune system was suppressed and my platelets were suppressed. So, you know, it's, and then slightly anemic on top of that. So it's like all the blood cells are suppressed. So you're just constantly struggling, trying to, you know, stay healthy and not be sick. So when I'm two years out of the first near-death experience, I wake up in the middle of the night. And this is something that would happen. You know, I would wake up and take my head off the pillow because I felt like I was going to leave again. And it's like, I'm like, okay, I've got to hold on to my soul, stay inside my body. And this was just, you know, my daily life was just like this and holding on to that soul. Don't leave. No, we got to stay here. And one, this one night, so I'm awake, I take my head off the pillow and, you know, I'm trying to hold on to my soul, but then it just, I just separate again, like in a split second, I'm outside. And this time it wasn't, I didn't see a tunnel. It was just as if I was falling through space. And it's the best description I have. It's kind of like you're tumbling through darkness, but you feel like you're just tumbling in space. But then I get to this station that I call the mid station because there is an awareness that as if you could go higher up, but you could also be at a lower level. And I call, it, I call this the mid station, the bouncing station, because I get there and I hear the most beautiful music that you can't even imagine that it's made. We can't even make music like this on earth because I grew up playing the piano. I played the guitar. I took voice lessons as a child. I was in theater as a child. And this music doesn't exist on the earth plane. And we had a synthesizer at the time that made, you know, something like 200 sounds. And I would sit at the synthesizer and try to recreate what I had heard, but there, there it was no sound that sounded so clear and so beautiful as this music. So I get to this, what I call mid station. I don't have a body. It's you're just, you're identifying, I identify myself as me, but I don't have a body. It's just my soul presence. And I see a log cabin and I always laugh at this, you know, what people see in their near-death experiences. Did I see log cabins? Because it was something that was comforting to me because I grew up in Sweden and there's a lot of log cabins and, you know, so it's just interesting what people see, but, um, 
it was just literally like clouds and then this little log clamp cabin floating in space. So no fields of flowers and mountains and fancy things that a lot of people see. Nope, I just see a log cabin floating in space. But I hear the music. And so I think, well, maybe the music is coming from the log cabin. So I open the door to look inside, but it's empty. So then I say, hmm, that's weird. And then I turn to my left and I see the exact same log cabin, like a mirror image of what I saw to the right is on my left. So then I'm thinking, well, maybe it's coming from this cabin. So I open the door, I look inside, but the log cabin is empty. But then I become aware of, it's almost like, um, you know, those really big um, lights they have at um, automobile um, dealers to attract attention, like a big spotlight. Like this, it's super white and super bright. It's, it's kind of like that, but it's coming from behind me. And it is as if I'm standing in one of those um, dealership spotlights, but the light is coming from behind me. But it's a really white and bright light. And the, so I'm turning around and I realize the music is coming from behind me. So I turn around and, I, and I'm standing in this spotlight or in this bright light. I shouldn't say spotlight because the light is, is really everywhere. It is as if you were blinded by the spotlight, right? Because it's just everywhere, but it's the brightest, whitest light that you have ever seen. But the music came from the light. And in the light, there was an outline of angels. Now, I had a near-death experience two years earlier, right? But I still didn't believe in angels. And I was still struggling with trying to understand what that was, you know, that near-death experience. So here I am standing in the light, but the, this light, there is a realization that we are light. We, we come from this light. We return to this light. We carry this light within us. We are this light. And it's that complete unconditional love that comes from this light. So that's as I'm standing in this light and just being one with the light, there is a spirit guide on my right. And then there is another spirit guide like to the left, the diagonally to the left in front of me. And the spirit guide on my right communicates with the other spirit guide. And he says, what is she doing here? She can't be here. She has to go back. So this is why I call it the bouncing station as if I got there by accident. So, so of course me trying to understand my first near death experience. And again, what's going on now? I say, no, no, no. No, wait a second. How can this be? How can I be here outside my body and still be me? How does this work? And the spirit guide on my diagonally to the left of me said, if I told you, you wouldn't remember. And I've heard other stories like this that somehow is this sort of can control what we get to remember, which makes perfect sense that I'm only supposed to remember what I got to remember. And so as he's saying that, he, he says, but you will remember this. And then it is, it's just like images sort of just appear. I don't even know what to call it. It's like a, a flat screen television that's just all black, but now all of a sudden you see images on it because the images are just there. But then 
what I see, it is as if I'm standing on the moon looking down at the earth. But around the earth is this diamond-shaped, what I call the fishnet, because it was the only description I had back then. And it's a silvery, glittery fishnet. And it reminded me of being a child, um, spending my summers on an island in the archipelago of Sweden with no electricity or running water and no phones. And I would row the boat for my grandmother because we would lay nets in the ocean to catch fish for the family to eat. And as I'm a little kid, about you know seven or eight years old, rowing this boat for my grandmother, as she lifted the nets out of the ocean in the morning and the sun sh was shining on these nets, they would sparkle in the sunlight. And so that's why looking down on the earth, seeing this fishnet, silvery, glittery fishnet around the earth, that's what I could, that's the only thing I could think of. It's like, it looks like a fishnet. And then he said, everything on earth is connected to each other. And everything on earth is connected up to this grid. And with that, I got sent back to my body. And again, it's just that tumbling through darkness and, and within a split second, you're back in your body. But for a long time, I really struggled with, with the experience because I was an atheist to begin with. My father was a physician. One of my brothers is a surgeon. My mom was a hospital administrator. I came from a very scientific background. If you can't see it, you can't believe it kind of thing. And, you know, you have to prove everything scientifically. So it was really difficult for me to understand what had happened. And I wasn't in the emergency room. So how could I prove what had happened? And what should I call this experience? Was it a near-death experience because I was so close to, you know, walking a fine line between life and death being so sick? Or was it a spiritually transformative event? But, you know, so many years went by and I struggled with this for so long. And it wasn't until 2015 that I finally came to terms with it and realized that it didn't matter what I call the experience because the only thing that matters in the end is how we changed from that experience. How did that experience change my life? And so it completely changed my life. So as the time went on, so for the first, the first near-death experience, you know, year one, and then two years later, another near-death experience, those 12 years that followed, so my daughter was 12, until I declared myself healed, first of all, from, uh, the bone marrow suppression and being healthy, being able to take on life again at 100%, not you know 70%, 80%, 90%. So it took a long time. But during this time of healing, I also started to become clairvoyant and clairaudient and clairsentient. And I had a lot of uh, what's called electrical um, interference. And that first year, my watch it was nine months uh, before I made it to Target after my first near-death experience. And my watch had stopped right after my daughter was born. When I had put it on in September, it just stopped. And I said, well, I'll have to get a new one when I get better. And when my daughter was nine months old, I was just well enough to make it inside a Target, get a watch, check out, and get back in the car. And I wore the watch for a week. 
and it stopped. So I said, wow, bummer, it stopped. Now I have to do, and it was such a big deal for me because it took a lot of energy for me to just get out of my car, walk inside the store, pick out a watch, pay and get back in the car. That was exhausting. So anyway, I go bring the watch back and the lady says, well, this is kind of unusual. We haven't gotten any other watches back. And I said, well, I don't know. And she says, okay, well, go pick out a new one. So I pick out a new one. I check out, get back in the car, wear it. One week later, it stops. Bring it back to Target. I was so embarrassed second time. So I said, and she said, wow, this is really unusual. We haven't gotten any of the other watches back. And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe there's some problem with this particular watch. Maybe there's poor quality control. I'm still in my scientific mode. So she says, go pick out another one. So this time I make sure I get a completely different brand, different watch. I, I go home, I wear it. One week later, it stops. So at this point, I tell my best friend and she looks at me and she laughs and she says, honey, it's not the watches, it's you. So I was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't even think of that. So then this whole watch thing came about. And so after one year, my watch would take a month. After my, when my daughter was two, it would take for two months. When my daughter was three, it would take for three months. And this went on with approximately adding one month of length until 12 years, my watch ticked for 12 months. So that's when I declared myself healed. I said, hey, my watch ticked for a year, that's it. And I took it off and I didn't wear a watch for a couple of years. I was like, that's it, I'm healed. But it, it just shows all the different things that can happen. So that was one of the uh, kind of like more scientific things that can happen and you have electrical interference. But there were other things that happened too. The television would turn on, the VCR would turn off. And it's this constant um, electrical problems, which um, are now listed as a common side effect for people that have had a near-death experience. And as we revive more and more people, it is, um, the way I look at it is kind of like we get out of sync because we are energetic beings. I mean, we measure the heart rate with electricity, the EKG, right? So we have electricity in us and when we go through an experience like that, it's like something gets slightly off. We're not ticking on that exact same frequency. And so it interferes with other frequencies. That's how I look at it. And then once you heal all of that and you get back to normal, now see, I wear a watch, no problems. You know, it, you, everything gets synchronized back together and you become one again. And it wasn't until 12 years, you know, that I really felt my soul was really part of me again. My watch ticked for a whole year. I was ready to take on life. And during these 12 years, I had become more and more clairvoyant, clairaudient, and clairsentient. And I started seeing things before they happened. And um, one morning I woke up. Uh, my kids were probably around 10 and uh, 10 and 12 or somewhere in that, in that age group, um, the two younger ones. And I saw that we had been in an accident of some kind. We had a van at the time. There was a big black scratch. I'm only telling you some of the stories because I only like to tell things that are verifiable um, because I'm a very scientific person. <laughs> so it's nice to be able to verify things. And I saw a big scratch. So the first image was a big scratch on the door. 
And then the second image was, I see two of my kids in the car, my middle uh, age child in the front seat, my younger child in the back seat. And then my, the third image, I'm leaving a note on the windshield of a black sedan car. And I'm thinking, well, where are the people? Like if I was in an accident, why didn't I see any people? Why am I leaving a note on the windshield? If, if people were injured and the ambulance had come, I, the, the police would be there. I wouldn't be leaving a note on the windshield. So I told my kids about this and I was driving them. We lived in uh, East Bay, San Francisco at the time. So I was driving them to San Francisco every day for school. And we figured out the only way we could get hit on the right-hand side would be if we made a left-hand turn and there was oncoming traffic. So we figured out the intersections and we said, well, it, the only intersection in the city is going to be when we get off the Bay Bridge, we go down to the light and we jog left and there's oncoming traffic on that street because San Francisco has, is mostly one-way streets. So every day we get to the light, my kids' noses are up against the windows okay, mom, coast is clear, you can go. So we did this for about 10 days. And then one day we go to the little bookstore in Walnut Creek where we lived. We come out of the garage and there's a lot of cars parked and there's a big UPS truck unloading boxes. And as I'm trying to squeeze on to the street and make a right-hand turn, there is a parked car a black car. <laughs> and as I'm turning the corner to make a right, I scrape the rear left fender of the car that's parked. And at this point, I know what's, what, what's happening. So I go, you know, I park my car, I go outside, and I look at the scratch. And it's the exact scratch that I had described to my children, you know, just like across the door. And I just lose it. I just, you know, start laughing hysterically because. It was so much, you know, worry about what was going to happen. And this was it. It was just this innocent accident. And every, like all the people, there were cars trying to get into the parking lot and people walking, shopping. And everybody's just staring at me thinking, this woman is crazy. She's <laughs> just <laughs> losing her mind laughing at this. And so, of course, what happens? I, I leave a note on the windshield of the black sedan car saying, I'm really sorry, I scraped your car. And I had this big scratch on my door, but to his car, it was so little. It was just a tiny, tiny chip of paint that was miss missing on the rear fender. But so what happened is that I would start seeing things like this. And it was just, you know, story after story that goes on. And I talk a lot about the different stories in my book, um, Med School After Menopause, The Journey on My Soul. And the reason it's called that is because I get so used to getting messages about people being sick in the families. I know my father is going to die or uh, my children are in danger or my you know, relatives are in danger and you know, calling people and warning them this is gonna happen. And after 12 years, um, I was in my living room. I had just gotten used to this. This you know, started to become my life now. And I was aware of a spirit entity in my living room and I had been looking online to what to do because my kids were now you know getting into their teenage years and it's time to go back to the workforce I was a programmer and a systems analyst working for IBM in my youth and I didn't want to go back to that um, my heart was my passion was always in helping other people in you know with health or spirituality, anything that I could, you know, help other people. That has always been my passion. So I'm looking online and I come across 
this program, Naturopathic Doctor. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, how cool is that? And then realizing, reading everything about it, okay, well, that's not going to happen. I can't, there's no way, I can't risk going to medical school. Like, first of all, I'm too old to go to medical school. It costs too much money. There is no guarantee I'm even going to make it through the program. I would have to move to another state. This, this is crazy. So I just put that aside. I'll find something else. So as I'm leaving the living room and I'm heading to the kitchen, I'm aware of this spirit entity coming into the living room. I can't see the spirit, but I can communicate. And the spirit guide says, you have to be, you have to go to medical school and become a naturopathic doctor. You have to combine East and West, which I understood somehow maybe that is because naturopathic medicine kind of is that combining old and new because we work with herbal and acupuncture and homeopathy, but also with pharmaceuticals. And then he said, um, I have to write two books, no wait, three. And I have to bring messages and healing to the people. And I said, I don't even understand what you're saying. What do you mean write a book? Write a book about what? I've never thought of myself as an author. And the spirit guy was like, when the time is right, we will tell you. For now, you just need to focus on becoming a doctor. And I'm again saying, well, what do you mean messages? What do you mean bringing healing to the people? What messages? When the time is right, we will tell you. Now, just go to medical school. And the messages, you know, having heard these things for not 12 years, it was just, it's just, you just know that this is the right thing to do. And it's somehow it's going to happen. You have no idea how, but you're just blindly trusting in that faith. So I enrolled in my pre-med classes within, I was literally in school, like in, within two weeks, uh, because the class, this was August and school was just about to start. So I was in school, I was in class like two weeks later. And not only did I have to start from scratch, because I was a business major when I graduated from, when I got my bachelor's degree, I was a business major with computer science. And so I had done programming systems analyst and business kind of, um, you know, focus. And I didn't have any biology. I didn't even have it from high school because I went to high school in Sweden. And in Sweden, we major in high school. If I had been a science major in high school, I would have had the biology, but I was a uh, language major in high school. So I didn't have the math because you, you get to specialize. So I was languages and business was my major in high school. Talk about going in the wrong direction, not listening to your passion. <laughs> so, but, so I didn't have math and I didn't have biology and chemistry or anything like that. So I literally had to start with high school advanced placement biology before I could get into my prereq classes, pre-med classes. I had to do that. I had to do a math class that was literally, again, advanced placement high school because I didn't have it. So I had to start literally at the high school, you know, those last classes so I could get into the pre-med classes. And in 2012, I went to medical school uh, and I had to move to Arizona because I went um, to a naturopathic medical school so that I could combine East and West and help heal people uh, in a more holistic way. And I graduated 2016, then did um, kind of a residency for two years. Uh, and then came back to Phoenix, uh, January 2019, and opened my own practice here in Phoenix. And after I graduated, um, I again, 
it was almost like, okay, now you've finished this part. And so now we're getting the spirit world starts coming back in, though they come in and out constantly, right? But it's like that next level of message. And I met a friend at a, at a conference and I didn't know her at all. We never got to work with each other, but we both knew that we were, came from Phoenix. So I said, well, you know what? Like when we get back, let's have dinner sometime. So I met this woman, Virginia, who I didn't really know anything about, except that she lived in Phoenix. And of all things, she says, um, I'm a medium and um, there's somebody here that wants to talk to you or give you a message. And are you open to receive messages? And at this point, I had just graduated from medical school. I had take, I graduated in June of 2016. In August, I took my uh, clinical boards, the second set of boards, because you take boards twice. You take boards after two years of med school, which is the science boards. And then two years later, you take your clinic boards. So, you know, three days of testing, um, taking the boards. And that was in August, but you don't find out if you've passed until October because it takes them that long to go through because the whole country takes this test at the same time. So there's no way of cheating or telling somebody at some, at some other place in the country what questions, as if you would remember <laughs> all these questions. But so it's a standardized test that's given at the same time. So here I am at this restaurant and uh, thinking, uh, sure, yeah, bring it on. Like, how is she going to know anything about me? I wasn't even raised in this country. How can she tell me anything, right? That's what I'm thinking. So sure enough, it was very obvious that it was my mother and she started talking about laying the fishnets. I mean, yeah, here we are in Scottsdale, Arizona, and she's talking about laying fishnets in the ocean. I knew that was my mother and all this other evidence came through. And she said, you have to go to Arthur Findlay College. And I said, I can't go to Arthur Findlay College. I don't even know if I passed my boards yet. And you know, I just graduated. I, I, I got to work. I got to make money. I got to support myself. And she says, no, they're adamant. And it just kept coming back over and over again that I had to go to Arthur Finley College. And I said, okay, fine. I'll figure out a way to go to Arthur Finley College. And then six months later, sure enough, I go to Arthur Finley College. And then that is how the whole next uh, unfolding happened, where all of a sudden I could um, control the communication with the spirit world and tune in and learn how do you identify the spirit on the other side and to bring in spirit beings for other people. So I had had contact, you know, with the spirit world for many, many years now, like 25 years since my first near-death experience in 1992, and now it's 2017. So it's been going on for a long time, but I couldn't control that communication. It was just I would just hear things or get messages, but I didn't know who it was or how I could bring in a message for somebody else. So then that happened starting in 2017 and then unfolded me into working as an evidential medium. So now I wear two hats. I, I work as a doctor in the clinic and I do um, telemedicine only right now because we're still in the pandemic uh, to keep everybody safe. And then I wear another hat and work spiritually with people and do evidential readings or ancestral healing, medical intuitive, uh, and teaching many different types of classes. So that, that's the short version, Lauren. <laughs> um, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's wow. a long story, but yeah. 
What a journey, what a story. And it happened, it unfolded over decades and uh, you were guided. When you see how you were guided all the way, how does that change your perspective now? What would you say based on this experience mm -hmm. is the most important thing that each of us should be doing? Where does our own individual power lie? Especially now with a pandemic, there's a lot of fear mm -hmm. going on. So um, what is your big picture take on everything? Yes, there is a lot of fear. Um, there is so many things happening, you know, in the world. It's not just our own country, but all over the world, people are struggling and losing jobs and um, making ends meet. But, you know, it's everybody, we all go through these dark periods in our life. And it's from these experiences, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the darkness that holds the power of creativity and transformation. It is, it is through that darkness that, you know, creativity and transformation takes place and new life awakens and begins. It is almost like, you know, when you plant the seeds in the ground, it's in the dark, the babies are, you know, grow in the womb in the dark, and then, you know, things sprout and come out. And we all go through periods in our life that are hard and, we all incarnate uh, what I call it with, with our sticky note list. Uh, you know, we were up there in the spirit world writing down on a piece of paper, all the different things we're gonna experience. It sounded so great on the other side. And then we get here and we're like, whoa, I signed up for so many things in this life. But, you know, as you resolve each problem, it's like that load gets lighter. And it's just a matter of no understanding that all difficult periods in your life are transient. Nothing lasts forever. It's all going to end at some point and it's just a matter of getting through it. But it's how we view the problem. So if we can change that perception. So instead of being caught in that fear that a lot of people feel, they have, they have a fear of how they're gonna survive, a fear about paying their bills, just turn that around to, to being grateful for what you do have. And so you shift that, that energy and create that, try and create that peace inside you and be thankful for what you do have, the pants, your shoes, your socks, the, the water. It doesn't matter what it is because there is a gazillion things that you can be thankful for. And I think that's the most important thing right now is to create that hope in people's hearts that things are gonna get better. This is not gonna last forever. And you're not alone suffering through this pandemic um, with whatever it is, being lonely or lo losing jobs or not seeing family members. Um, you know, there is the whole world is suffering with us, but if we can all just change that and know that there are a lot of good things that are going to come from this experience and things are going to change for the better. And this is all, you know, just going to be a memory when we look back and say, wow, remember 2020, that's when things started to change. And we brought out all this other new light for healing and changing and transformation, because that's really what's happening right now is we're transforming the way we are existing, working, living, interacting, and a lot of good things are going to come out of this. So I love that positive perspective. Truly. That's mm -hmm. why we always say, hold our vision of new earth, be creative for new earth. And we are seeing systems 
from the old world, the old ways before 2020, we could even say before 2012, mm -hmm. the old paradigm is shifting and changing and we haven't created new earth yet, but we are in the mm -hmm. process of it. So let's talk. All right. So what an, an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions that come up. We will have you on again. Mm -hmm. We'll have you on again, uh, taking questions from our mm -hmm. audience members, because that whole uh, medical mediumship is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And there's so much to, to unpack from, from what you said, but I want to go to the medical mediumship mm -hmm. when you're and, and again, I do want to say there's something about out-of-body experiences. We've heard this from the great mm -hmm. sages that this out-of-body experience or near-death experience actually does connect us more. And you actually mm -hmm. witnessed that with your energetic vibration. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. So when you developed your medical medium intuitiveness, mm -hmm. what was that like? Are you receiving information from guides, from someone else's guides? Um, I would say it's my spirit guides that um, will give me information. And it's one of those situations where if you're supposed to have a message, you're going to get it. If you're not supposed to, you're not going to get it. Um, and it does happen. You can't help it. So even if you work as a doctor, you're you're working under your medical license when you work as a doctor because that's what you have to do. It's, it's the law, right? So I can't I can't treat you spiritually. That's why I have two businesses. So if you want to work with me spiritually, you have to see me in the other business. If you want to work with me medically, you see me as a doctor. But do you still get messages? Yes. Have I ordered? Uh, extra tests because I got a message. Yes, because it's unavoidable, right? So you're still working as a physician, but if my spirit guide comes in and says, okay, well, uh, you just listen to this person's lungs. They're completely clear. Um, they complain of a tickle cough, but um, you can't find anything wrong. And you're listening for 10 minutes, but there is a nothing that you can hear. But then the spirit guy comes in and says, do an x-ray, it's lung cancer. And you're like, uh, okay, so you suggest maybe we should just do an x-ray just, just to be sure. And sure enough, it comes back as lung cancer and the person passes away four weeks later. And literally that diagnosis, it was meant for me to find that. So I, you know, I was given that so that this person was a caretaker for their spouse. And by getting this information, it allowed this person to put other care in, in place for the, for the spouse and get all the papers in order. And then literally passed away with, you know, like four weeks later. And so that gave that person that opportunity. It's not like I could save that person's life, but it allowed for an easy transition. See what I'm saying? So sometimes it can be something like that. Um, so yes, you, sometimes you do things because spirit world comes in and sort of interferes and nudges you and says, maybe you should do this anyway, though you really don't have a reason to do it, but we're going to do it anyway, right? Because you wouldn't order an x-ray on somebody that's not even really coughing and you can't even hear anything when you listen to the lungs. But then, and no fever, has not been sick, just complains of a little tickle cough in uh, living in somewhere where the allergies are really, really high and we have high allergy season. So most physicians at that point would say it's probably just allergies. So, you know, take some allergy medication. 
but then that's what happened in that case. So um, yeah, the spirit world comes in and, and helps you out with things uh, sometimes when you least expect it. Fascinating. So you have a, a wide variety of the mm -hmm. services that you offer as well. You work with the ancestral healing. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about ancestral healing. Mm -hmm. What do you see? I mean, how does that come to you when you work with clients? What's going on there? Yeah, so um, typically the way it's actually started was when I was doing mediumship readings and I started seeing the patterns of repetition, um, you know, from the, uh, being guided by the spirit world. And that's uh, what sort of led me to study ancestral healing. And there is these patterns and behaviors that we inherit from our ancestors. And we actually now have research that we inherit trauma via DNA. So we already know the FKBP5 gene because uh, it's a methylation gene for people who are familiar with that. But so they did research on survivors from um, the concentration camps and the trauma they had experienced and traced it down to the, you know, the living grandchildren today. And they could see that the genes, the certain gene markers were flipped and therefore the grandchildren had you know, poor stress response or would experience a trauma that really they had never experienced. They were afraid, let's say, so here would be an example. Let's say grand, grandpa was in a concentration camp and every time he saw these men in uniform, uh, he froze in fear because he didn't know if that was gonna be it and that was gonna be his time. So he survives the concentration camp, he's released, but he's flipped this gene marker now and he has you know, children and then they have children and now his granddaughter is alive and she has this tremendous fear of men in uniform, but she's never, nobody in the family was in the military. She's not been in the military. She really hasn't been around people with uniform. There's no reason why she would be terrified of man, a man in uniform. So there is an example of an inherited trauma of her carrying that trauma fear within her that really the grandfather experienced. So many times we have these fears or even um, it can be depression, it can be a fear, a fear of being alone, um, giving you examples, OCD, I'm washing my hands excessively or your teenager has OCD, we don't really know what's wrong. I mean, the hands are you know, bleeding almost because he's constantly washing the hands. And that can actually be traced back to a fear there's somebody else in the family that had some kind of a trauma that then led to that behavior or that, um, that pattern or those thoughts. And once you can identify where and why it, that is happening, why we have that fear, or why we're doing something, why we're washing our hands excessively, once we identify it, it can be released and it can be healed. And so once you identify it, it's it's just like you flip a switch because it's no longer there because all of a sudden you understand why you have that fear and then it's like not there anymore. So it's, I love working with people um, in these ways because uh, so many, um, so many things can be resolved. And we think that, you know, we have this fear, we have this anxiety or whatever it is and we get medicated for it, but the problem is still there. And if you can just 
pinpoint it and figure out what it is that's causing it, then you can resolve it. And that's it. It's gone like that. So yes. it's fascinating. It is very fascinating. Mm. I mean, it looks like, all right, with the fear that, it, okay, I can look at my own life and see, I recognized at the beginning of this pandemic, I saw myself in a past life where I died of the plague. And so I can see that that's a pattern. Mm -hmm. So let's say when you work with your clients, mm -hmm. and again, you're being assisted by your guides and your clairvoyance mm -hmm. and your clairaudience, when you work with your clients, how do you identify? Is it just um, taking the person into the heart space to, for them to look back at their timeline? Can you describe mm -hmm. how you identify it? Yeah, so um, if we're doing an ancestral healing, I start, um, they, I will send them a questionnaire and uh, what I call like the, the 12 original questions that asks a little bit about what's going on. But then you have to um, you have to sort of take the puzzle apart. So you have to identify where it could come from. So you kind of have to go through the family. Okay, so who was your mother? Who was your father? Are they still married? Are they separated? Okay, so the mother, let's say, was married three different times. Well, it was married three different times. Now you get three ways of connecting with those other people because it's not just... Um, your true ancestral line, but other people that have crossed the path. So it could be uh, the father's first wife is now entangled with you because it's that entanglement that happened with anything that we come in contact with. Because when, if you remember what I said, when I was in the spirit world, I was told everything on earth is connected to each other and everything on earth is connected back up to the grid. And it's this constant evolution for me. And, you know, every th three or four years, I'll say I've figured it out. And now I'm again at this plateau 28 years later. Oh, I figured it out. It's because, you know, the way we're connected with ancestral healing and or the way we're intertwined with everything else. But it just extends further and further, um, you know, from that because we are entangled, not just via the DNA, but also via just the energetics of everything, right? So we, we are connected through time and space to people. So it takes a little bit of um, going through the history and figuring out who did what, who said what, who was married to who, who left at what age, who married somebody else. So you kind of have to dig uh, through the ancestor ancestors in your line. And sometimes people don't remember things if they've had a very traumatic childhood, but that still works out because what they remember is what's going to help heal it. And it's just very fascinating. Uh, so they might say, I don't have any memories until I was 12 or I don't really remember anything, but it always works out anyway, because they'll say, Oh yeah, grandma did blah, 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 blah. And then they'll remember something else about something, somebody else, but what comes through is what's needed for that session to heal. And it's just fascinating because it's like it's, it's information that's needed to heal is readily available. Even if you don't remember it, remember your childhood, it's still there. Yeah, fascinating. You do ancestral healing sessions with mm -hmm. people and we're gonna talk about ways that people can work with you for these sessions. Would you say that the, all right, we've talked about this before on this show, yeah. when we're talking about the healing and, and it, this mm -hmm. is really becoming whole with everything, awareness 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 is so powerful isn't it mm -hmm. 
when you're looking at the healing process, whether it's um, healing an ancestral line or whether it's uh, removing a belief system, a false belief mm -hmm. system that mm -hmm. truly limits us, how much of a percentage is the awareness of that issue, that behavior, that belief mm -hmm. system, that pattern, and then how much is just our continued presence with it? Can you quantify that? So it's the awareness of what happened that heals you, right? Once you can change, change that perception about those events and you can see it, once you see it, it's, it's a heal. This, you're creating, you're helping the client create an awareness of why they have the problem they're having. So you have, that's something you have to kind of like dig through um, and, um, you know, be a little Sherlock Holmes and in, in figuring out where that could be coming from, the, the problem that the client is experiencing. But once you have the awareness of what it is, it's, that's it. You've resolved it because now you you understand it instead of being, you know, caught and not knowing and just being trapped in that energetic emotional state of whatever is wrong. So really that awareness is everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you talk about changing the perception, that really is the golden key of our existence on this planet. When we talk about new earth, creating the new ways and the new earth, or even the fifth dimension, in your experiences, it seems that you've been able to see from a higher perspective, what would you say about our judgment, right? If we talk about the fifth dimension and being mm -hmm. from a higher perspective, there really is no room for judgment. Yeah, so judgment is something that comes from our ego because we judge ourselves constantly. And um, it is something actually I'm teaching, will be teaching in my course, uh, Soul's Journey, Heart's Way, is how do we open that door to the divine potential that exists within ourselves? Because judgment, right, judgment is one, and that comes from the ego. And we constantly judge ourselves for who we are and what we're doing. Oh, that was stupid. Why did you do that? Right. We have all this little, like little self-talk going on constantly. And it's a matter of learning how to train yourself to be able to put that aside and then going within to find it. But these, you can't just take a weekend class and learn how to do this. Um, which is why I developed my eight week long class because it's going to, you know, it's a weekly class because you have to move along, you know, at one step at a time. You can't just go to bed and meditate for three days and then wake up and think that you're a medium because it doesn't happen that way. It is a way of life. You have to change the way you look at things. You constantly have to remind yourself. You have to do certain things and exercises and, and help you um, get to that point where you can actually make a change. Yes get to the point where we make a change. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. We're going to talk about, again, the beautiful things that you have for people to work with you. But before we get there, I want to say, let's go back to your, vi your, vi your vision, Mother Earth, mm -hmm. and everything is connected to the grid. We're connected to 
each other. Mm-hmm. I think we're feeling this now. Yeah. <laughs> we're seeing this now in this time. Yeah. But the grid, oh my gosh. Describe the grid. Tell us more. What do you know about the grid? Yeah, so um, the grid I know now since 2015, and it was 2015 that I told my daughter, um, who, who cost my near-death experiences, the whole story. And she was uh, about 23 or so at the time. And I told her about the grid. And back when this happened, first of all, we didn't have internet back then. And the internet came about, uh, what, in the early 2000s or something, but was back when we actually had books to get to a website because there was no search. Google wasn't developed yet. And I borrowed so many books from the San Francisco Public Library to try and understand what this grid is. First of all, I borrowed books on time. How could there not be any time on the other side? And I was reading books by Stephen Hawkins. I could, didn't even understand the math. So I would just skip all his equations and just read the text, trying to understand time. Like, why wouldn't there be any time on the other side? And I looked all over the library for anything that could tell me anything about the grid. But I was probably not in the right departments because I didn't even know what am I supposed to search on, right? So in 2015, I told my daughter, about what I had experienced. And she looks at me and she says, mom, you're talking about the grid. There are pictures of it on the internet. (laughs) So if you Google the grid, there are many images that look so similar to what I saw that is literally like a diamond shaped net around the earth. And we know that, uh, you know, and information and energy travel on these, this is something that the government has been using since the 1950s or 1960s. They've been doing studies on these and the ley lines. And, you know, can we, can we use this to spy on, on you know, our enemies? So this is something that people have known about for a long time, at least the military has. So it's fascinating now to think about, there's so many people that have seen the grid and it wasn't until 2015, I went to, uh, a conference, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IANDS.org. And they are the the volunteer organization of the world um, that helps people with near-death experiences. And also all the researchers are connected to IANDS. So that was the first time I went to one of their conferences and I was blessed to be able to sit at PMH Atwater's lunch table Uh, She is an author of 18 books on near-death studies. And um, I sat next to her and she said, okay, we were seven people at the table. And she said, I want to hear all your stories. So I told her mine and she looks at me and she says, oh, you saw the grid. So many people have seen the grid. Did you see the bubbles? And I said, no, I did not see the bubbles. There's bubbles in the grid. (laughs) And she said, yes, some people have seen bubbles in the grid. And it was at that moment that I, for, my, for the first time in my life, felt normal about talking about it because it was such a relief to me to hear that she had apparently talked to thousands of people, right? Been doing all these near-death studies for 40 years, interviewing people and you know, written these 18 books. And she has met so many people that have seen the grid. So it's not something unusual that I saw. It was my experience because it initiated my life path of what it was I was here to do. And if I hadn't had those experiences, I would not 
be a physician and a medium today. So I had to have these experiences to help me transform my life from being a complete atheist and not believing in anything to becoming a healer and helping other people find healing for themselves, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And so that initiated the path for me. But I don't really know anything about the grid, except that it's, you know, it connects everything. It connects everything around the earth. We are all connected to plants, trees, each other, everything, animals. And that somehow goes up to the grid, which uh, the way I look at it, then goes back out into our solar system because it's just levels of connection that happens at each different level that goes out, right? It's almost like we live in a little, you know, those uh, Russian dolls where the innermost doll and then there's another doll and another doll and another doll. It's kind of, we think our world is that innermost doll of those Russian dolls because that's what we have. That's what we see. We live on earth and this is what we see. This is our experiences in our bodies. But what about the other doll that's outside the little doll and then the next doll and the next doll and the next doll, right? We don't know. We're trying to figure out what's out there doing all these space explorations, but nobody really knows for sure. So, but that's how I look at it. It's just many different levels of, of and it's for us to expand and learn about it. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. We've heard about the, the crystalline grid as well, uh, attaching to uh, the higher grid elevations that exist. We are truly connected well beyond what we can see. And I just thank you for sharing that story because it really is fascinating and it helps us all understand so much better. And so, you know, your abilities came on and now you, you help other people as well. And we can all do this as well, right? And you've actually got beautiful courses and sessions for people to, to take them deeper, but we don't need a near-death experience, do we? We can, um, we can tap into this yeah. in this lifetime with ease and grace. So let's talk a little bit about services that you offer, Dr. Mm -hmm. Lote, because this is where people can work with you directly mm -hmm. in your beautiful expertise. Mm -hmm. So you've got ancestral heal healing sessions, mm -hmm. Yeah, are very deep. And you've got mm -hmm. uh, evidential psychic medium and that course. Mm -hmm. Tell us about those. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we spoke a little bit about the ancestral healing and then um, medical intuitive sessions are where people can work with me on a spiritual level. Um, so sometimes we see different things when we work spiritually than when we work medically. So, you know, medically, you sort of get stuck in doing the intake, asking all the historical questions, what kind of diseases have you had? What pharmaceutical drugs are you on? And you got to get through all those things um, so that you have, you know, a logical order of how things have transpired and, and what it is that you're suffering from right now. But when you work spiritually and medically intuitive, I don't know any of those, any of those things about you. And it's just, uh, you know, you're tuning in, you know, I'm tuning into the body and saying, um, you know, I feel like there's a blockage here or a blockage there, you know, what's going on? Do you have problems here? Oh, okay. So that feels like, you know, it's coming from this area of your body. So it's a whole different uh, thing because it's more, uh, you're tuning into the body, feeling, sensing 
um, or working with the spirit guides simultaneously where they will give me messages about what's going on. So that's, you know, a whole different approach to healing. And sometimes um, people also need spiritual healings versus um, the, the medications. And, um, and then the class is uh, Soul's Journey, Heart's Way. And that is based on my book, Med School After Menopause, The Journey of My Soul, which is really a book about transformation, healing, and spirituality. Because the way I wrote that book is to help other people reflect on their own life and bring out their own um, divine potential, really. It is for them to open their heart, to understand what they can do. Um, there are um, lessons on how to become more intuitive, how to become more spiritual, how, um, how do you connect with your spirit guides. And um, it takes you from a journey through the book where when you read my story and my examples, and then each chapter ends with a message and um, a little um, exercise, that people can, you know, start doing to help them transform their life and heal spiritually, emotionally, and physically. So it's, it talks about my journey and my experiences, but at the same time, it helps you reflect on your own life. And by you knowing about my story and the lessons that come with each chapter, it sort of starts transforming you. So the class I developed, Soul's Journey, Heart's Way, is based on the book because it's kind of like a thread and that's why it's eight weeks long because each week you're kind of opening another door and changing because you can't you can't let's say you have a hundred doors you can't open all hundred doors at the same time you got to open one at a time so it's like each week you open another door of your possibilities or how you're viewing things and it's changing how you view things and your perception and uh what what you're thinking that you can do, you know, people are way more talented than they give themselves credit for. Typically people are hardest on themselves versus being hard on other people. And how do you overcome that? And what do you, how do you heal that? And how do you find that passion? And um, how do you, how do you just move on? What, what does the process look like? And so that's what that, that soul's journey, heart's way course is about is by helping people transform their own life, becoming more spiritual, becoming more intuitive, uh, if they want to make a career change, but how do you do that? So taking them on, on a journey, literally their soul journey through these eight weeks and changing that into the feeling of the heart and feeling um, in the body versus um, letting our mind control us with the little chatterbox. So I, I'm really looking forward to, to um, helping other people transform and change their lives and helping them become more intuitive and spiritual and, and just accomplish things that they want to accomplish, but might feel blocked to do so. So, Thank you. Yes. Uh, moving through the blocks that, you know, we keep ourselves uh, limited mm -hmm. from, that's really the key. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for, wow, sharing that. I absolutely love your blend of the spirituality with the naturopathic doctor mm -hmm. that you are and the integration of this. You are mm -hmm. a new earth medical spiritual practitioner. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see that as a new combination mm -hmm. in the future because it is intertwined, just like the mm -hmm. grid is connected on our earth with each yeah. other and upwards. 
So you're doing tremendous mm -hmm. work. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So sessions with you again mm -hmm. are available on this webpage for our audience. Mm -hmm. And this course is good for anyone though. There We have many yes. healers. So this helps even the healers yes. do better at their mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because we'll be talking, yes, we'll be talking about everything from A to Z, um, developing more spirituality, mediumship, intuition, changing the way you exist and function and heal. So it's going to wow. be a fun course. What a beautiful mm -hmm. time on our planet to do this work. This is deep, deep inner work. Mm -hmm. And it truly is anchoring in mm -hmm. the heart, right? That's Yes, absolutely. I always talk about... Um, people sometimes ask me, how do I, how do I meditate? And I say, well, first you got to, you know, take your brain out and leave it on top of the fridge. And then you can start meditating. <laughs> this is that it's, you know, just getting out of your head is very difficult because we have created a world where it's all about the mind and school is based like that. We were raised that way. We're raised in the Western world. And how do you change that? And how do you how do you know when you're working from your heart space? Sometimes people think they are, but they really are still in their mind. So it, it, it takes time to, to change that. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to help people do with this course is changing how they exist and how even people deal with daily life because it's the course will change them. It will change how they look at things. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like doing my life in fast forward. <laughs> Instead yes. of 25 years, they're going to do it in eight weeks. So in eight powerful mm -hmm. transformation yeah. weeks based on your life experience mm -hmm. and your personal journey, uh, which is quite remarkable. So thank you. When we mm -hmm. look at the investment of these eight weeks, that is priceless, actually. Mm -hmm. If we do the math on each weekly rate with your mm -hmm. special offer, it really is a beautiful mm -hmm. opportunity for those to make that great change. So those who are listening and feeling this in their heart know whether or not they hear the call, mm -hmm. whether or not this feels right. If it feels right, you know it. Again, that's the the blind trust that you had, Dr. Lote, right? This blind yes. trust. And that's key as well. So we invite those who are so called to join Dr. Lote. Check out her special offer, which is available here on this webpage. Well, this has been very interesting. Mm -hmm. I thank you. We're going to bring you back on our show. We'll do mm -hmm. a live session where you can take calls from our audience. I know mm -hmm. they will love that. In the meantime, oh, yeah. thank I'll you be happy so much to. for being here. Yes. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to coming back and answering any questions from the audience. I love, I love working with the audience too, so it's great. And on this time on our planet, again, a word, maybe one or two or a phrase for everyone to take away. Mm. Everything is divine and so are you. Thank you.